Okay, um, I'm just starting now. I had already been talking, but uh, now I'm talking, I think, with my mute button off. Um, so welcome back to the courses that we've been, uh, had a great start and look forward to the, uh, the continuation of the program. And uh, we'll kick back in with somebody that we've already uh, heard from, uh, Melanie Thompson. Melanie, as Mike uh, said, uh, is a, a very active HIV clinician in Atlanta, uh, has uh, for years uh, run what is probably the biggest uh, community-based uh, clinical and clinical research uh, uh, site in the, in the country. And uh, Melanie will tackle the question that has been around now for a few years of ending the HIV epidemic. Melanie, do you want to get started? Can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. Great. So um, we're going to go from that micro world of taking care of individual patients and now have uh, sort of a larger worldview in terms of ending the entire HIV epidemic in the US. And here are my disclosures. They are in your syllabus. Uh, I, I hope after this talk, you'll be able to list some strategies and goals of the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative uh, and to uh, discuss disruptions to HIV services that have occurred in the last couple of years of COVID, um, and then uh, list some policy suggestions to help address issues that are impacting our ability to end this epidemic. So let's start by looking at strategies and goals for ending the US HIV epidemic. And they are, of course, laid out in the National HIV Strategy, um, which began in 2010 and has recently been updated just this year to take us into 2025. And also we wanna talk about the US Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative, which started in 2019 and really targets about 57 hotspots that account for over 50% of the new diagnoses in the country, uh, including several, uh, seven states actually, that have substantial rural HIV prevalence. And you can see the primary funding streams here. So there are four key ending the HIV epidemic strategies. First of all, diagnose everyone with HIV as early as we can, and then treat them as quickly and effectively as we can to get their virus suppressed and sustained. Um, and then we wanna prevent new HIV transmissions using proven methods like PrEP and syringe service programs. And finally, respond quickly to HIV outbreaks in order to get services to the people who need them. Now, the overarching goals of the EHE initiative are a 75% reduction in new HIV infections by 2025, and that is just around the corner, uh, and at least a 90% reduction by 2030. And that would take us to below 3,000 infections per year. Uh, so in order to address this issue of how COVID has impacted our ability to end the epidemic, let's look at where we were before COVID uh, and where we are now. 
So the, in 2019, serostatus awareness was at about 87%. And the goal from the 2020 uh, HIV strategy was uh, 90% for serostatus awareness. And in terms of new diagnoses, the goal was to reduce them by 25% by 2020. And in 2019, we were seeing an overall 21% decrease in new diagnoses. Now that's compared to 2010. Um, but one thing that's striking is that there really was only an 8% decrease between 2015 and 2019. So it seemed to have slowed down. And importantly, the biggest decreases were in gay and bisexual men who were white, and interestingly, in African-American heterosexual men, but that is a much smaller population. But let's look at who didn't see much of a decrease. Uh, African-American and Latino gay and bisexual men saw very, very little decrease uh, between 2015, 2019. Women did not do very well. And the biggest change in terms of an increase was among uh, people who inject drugs. Now, I'll remind you, as Roger did, that um, really only 25% of new diagnoses as of 2019 were among non-Hispanic whites. And if you come to Georgia, you'll find that it's even less so here, 16% um, in Georgia, we have 72% of new diagnoses in African-Americans alone. So these are the highly impacted populations who are getting less response. Let's look at retention in care goals. Now the prevalence continuum is a continuum including all people with HIV. And if you look at it that way, only about half of all people with HIV are retained in care. If you look at a diagnosis continuum, where really we're looking uh, only at people who know that they have an HIV diagnosis, then about 58% of them are diagnosed, uh, I'm sorry, are retained in care, but that is far short of the 2020 goal of 90%. If you look at those who had received any medical care, then we see a slightly higher amount, 76%. And of course, there are disparities as we just saw by geography, demographics, and so on. Now, what about the viral suppression goal? The goal is 80% of diagnosed people. If you look at the prevalence continuum, you see only 57% of people had viral suppression in 2019. But if you look at the diagnosed continuum, then you see that about 66% of people who had a diagnosis had suppressed virus in 2019, still a far cry from 80%. Now, if you are looking at people who received any care, that level is quite a bit higher, 86.2%. And remember this when we look at Ryan White data in just a minute. And again, we have the same disparities. Oops. But let's look for just a moment at where our public health workforce is in 2019. It turns out that state and local public health workforces have shrunk really over the decades. The majority of states spend less than $100 per person per year on public health. So we are starting the pandemic with an inadequate workforce. 
and also our HIV workforce was inadequate pre-COVID. There is a significant urban-rural disparity in the South, so 81% of counties had no experienced HIV clinician. 4% of experienced HIV clinicians were practicing in rural areas, and 80% of counties had no ID specialist. Now, this is important because uh, we know from data from New York State that HIV experts uh, who see uh, that actually should be more than 20 patients a year, uh, produce better care outcomes for people with HIV. And then along came Rona. So it is going to take a while to sort out the impact of COVID-19. So all of these thoughts that I'm going to share should be considered preliminary. However, it is very clear that coronavirus hit a public health system that was already inadequate, hollowed out, and struggling. And I will say this has been made even worse by, by MPOX, monkeypox. The National Association of County and City Health Officials said this, the COVID-19 response has taken time, attention, and personnel away from all of the other health priorities and underfunded, understaffed health departments tried to respond to this crisis, but in doing so, existing services were strained or paused with health impacts that ripple through communities. And these are some of the impacts uh, from uh, NACO uh, on US health departments, uh, suspended or reduced HIV, STI, viral hepatitis services. And of course, staff were redeployed to manage the COVID response uh, and also uh, to comply with social distancing. Um, they, health departments really had to deal with STI services, CDC recommended syndromic management. So in many places, uh, only symptomatic people were seen or known contacts of people who were diagnosed. So we probably missed a lot of asymptomatic infections, um, community outreach, education, prevention services were also suspended by many health departments and HIV PrEP initiation for new clients. Uh, syringe service programs also suffered. And there was a definite effect also on smaller health departments that often had less ability to respond. Now, there were some innovative things that health departments, uh, as well as clinical uh, settings, did to uh, deal with the pandemic. Telemedicine was implemented rapidly express STI testing, home testing programs, including for HIV, and several interventions to uh, ensure better access to syringe service programs. And, and I think we need to think about how we can keep these good things that have developed. Community-based organizations serving people with HIV and at risk for HIV uh, suffered tremendously during the early days of COVID. Over half of them required financial assistance for overhead or for provision of services or for working with technology. And 40% of them had trouble shifting to a virtual setting. It's important to note that the needs of the clients went up at the same time and 82% of their clients needed food and 82% needed mental health services. And about half of the CBOs reported reduced volunteer workforces 
and reduced number of clients who were actually willing to engage in services. Now, we learned this year uh, from CDC that HIV diagnoses decreased by 17% in 2020. I think there may be a pretest question about that. But does this mean that we're doing such a good job in ending the epidemic? The answer is no. So this steep reduction in diagnoses CDC feels is due to disruptions in clinical care services, patient hesitancy in accessing clinical services, shortages in HIV testing reagents and materials, and there's concern about underdiagnosis. Just last week, CDC published this MMWR uh, in which they looked at data from two large commercial laboratories, the IQVIA um, prescription database and the National HIV Surveillance System. And what they found was a dramatic decrease in HIV testing in the second quarter of 2020. Also, HIV RNA tests declined in that quarter, uh, but they did rebound. They found that there were relatively stable proportions of people who were linked to care, who were newly diagnosed, uh, number of prescribed antiretrovirals. Now, this is prescribed antiretrovirals, and we're going to see something a little different in a minute that looks uh, like a different outcome. Um, and then the proportion with suppressed viral load stayed fairly stable. But they are careful to say that the full impact on the pandemic of the use of prevention and care services and HIV outcomes is just simply not known at this time. So we'll take another view um, from a white paper from Milliman that looked at the IQVIA longitudinal database for claims. And they are looking at claims from insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, comprising 80% of HIV pharmacy claims and 60% of medical claims. Now, the caveat is that this is going to exclude uninsured patients. And we're not sure what the overlap with Ryan White is at this time. So I want to orient you to these graphs. You'll see this green line recurring in every graph. That represents COVID cases over time between January 2020 and October 2021. And what we see in terms of HIV testing is this very steep decline that CDC told us about with a relatively rapid uh, increase. And yet, there was an 11% decline in HIV testing over this time period, and it is estimated that over half a million HIV tests were missed during this time period. Now, what about HIV diagnoses? Again, a very sharp decline, as you see in the orange line here, and it never quite gets back to baseline here. And baseline is the 2019 average. And we are 15% below the 2019 average all the way through October of 2021. Now we're looking at initiation of antiretrovirals. That's the blue line here. And what you can see is that there was a decline and that actually also stays below the baseline. In fact, 17% below the 2019 average. This is for antiretroviral starts. And then 
when they looked at treatment discontinuations, they saw that the uh, average was above 19, 2019 at all times, and that ranged from 15% to 50%. This definitely varies by states. You can see in these two examples, uh, there are 15 states that had new HIV diagnoses that were over 20% below the 2019 average, and 11 that had new antiretroviral starts more than 20% below the 2019 average. When you look at metropolitan statistical areas, there are 14 MSAs, fairly significant size cities, including my city, Atlanta, uh, 14 that had testing diagnosis and new treatment initiation that was before below 2019 levels. Now let's shift to care for a minute and we're gonna look at some Ryan White data. In 2020, 89.4% of people who are in Ryan White care, that is this is a continuum that begins with people who are in care, had viral suppression. And if you look at the numbers from 2019 and the numbers from 2021, you can see that viral suppression increased every year from 2019 to 2020 to 2021. And these numbers are actually quite good. You can dive into the data uh, and look at the priority populations and how they did with viral suppression. So, so remember, you know, these viral suppression numbers are averages. And if you look at unstably housed clients, what you see in 2020 was that their viral suppression was only 78, 76.8%. Uh, and for African-Americans, it was 86.7%. But the good news here also is that in every category of these priority populations, viral suppression increased from 2019 to 2020 to 2021. It's very important to recognize that Ryan White clinics receive, many of them, not all, receive supplemental funding from the CARES Act that helped them to sustain themselves over time. And in fact, uh, in October of 2020, almost 100,000 people received services through Ryan White that were paid for by CARES funding. And this funding was critical in helping clinics ramp up their telemedicine. You can see uh, almost a doubling of telemedicine between the first quarter of 2020 and April, May, and June of that same year. Now let's go back to the Milliman uh, white paper for a second and look at PrEP. So what we see with PrEP is that there was an increase, a small increase every month pre-COVID, and that reversed during early COVID. But in 2021, there was a 4% increase every month uh, in, in PrEP utilization. And you see on the right, this really beautiful green map that looks like everything is dandy. But I think what Roger has already showed us is that this looks great, but we are nowhere near where we need to be in terms of PrEP. Now I wanna show you a case study coming from Fenway Clinic that looked at the disruptions in PrEP access in the early COVID days, January to um, April, 2020. 
And what they saw was almost a 200% increase in refill lapses for PrEP. And this was statistically significantly associated with age, race, and ethnicity. They also saw a decrease in new PrEP starts. That's the red line there, down 72%. And they saw an overall decrease of about 18% in total patients with active PrEP prescriptions. So what does this all mean? Disruptions in testing, disruptions in PrEP access, how does that play out over time? And again, I don't think we know that, but there are a lot of modeling groups that are doing this work. Um, I chose this study because it is from one of the ending the HIV epidemic jurisdictions, Jackson, Mississippi. It focuses on the priority population of uh, African-American MSM. And what they looked at was um, decreases in HIV testing and PrEP initiation and how they played out in terms of HIV incidence and HIV diagnoses. And I'm not showing the incidence graph, but during this time period, uh, when we saw service disruptions, we also see HIV incidents rising in their model. And this graph shows you the level of decrease for um, service disruptions, 25%, 50%, 75%. And interestingly enough, and not unexpectedly, we see decreases in HIV diagnoses associated with service disruption and increases in HIV diagnoses where we never really catch up for several years because of these excess uh, new HIV infections. So, you know, this is a longstanding projection of impact of the um, service disruptions that were seen early in the uh, pandemic and, and to some extent that are still going on for some groups. Now we have to remember that there are other uh, disruptions. So here is a, a graph of pediatric vaccinations that fell off a cliff abruptly there um, in, during the pandemic in terms of provider orders as well as administered doses. This um, is also true for some adult vaccinations, although we don't have quite as much data. And there also was a decline in cancer screening, um, breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screening uh, declined during 2020. And we also saw, saw colonoscopies decrease, although stool testing increased, which sort of mitigated that, um, uh, that issue to some extent. And if we were to dive into the uh, populations most affected, you would see disparities here just as we always see. Now, uh, in 2020, CDC published an MMWR that was based on a survey of about 5,000 adults uh, in, June 2020, uh, in June 2020, and 41% reported having delayed or avoided medical care because of COVID, and that was emergency or routine care. And look at the most impacted groups. These are the people we serve. 
people with greater than or equal to two chronic conditions, black and Hispanic adults and youth. And there is concern that the delayed or avoided medical care might increase morbidity and mortality associated with both chronic and acute health conditions. And I think we, many of us are seeing these patients come in with chronic conditions that have not been attended to for a couple of years. And our ERs are seeing a lot of these patients. So what are the potential COVID-19 impacts on ending the epidemic? First of all, the inadequate and overburdened workforces uh, with limited capacity to deliver testing, prevention, and care services, decreased HIV testing and PrEP initiation has resulted in some increase in HIV transmission. We don't really know how much yet. And missed and delayed HIV diagnoses result in delayed antiretroviral therapy initiation which also affects uh, an increase in HIV transmission and in progression of disease. And we haven't talked much about STIs. Uh, there are modeling data on STIs that I don't have time to show you today, but missed and delayed STI diagnoses, uh, which is also true of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, cause unnecessary morbidity and also more transmission. Uh, I just mentioned that deferral of routine screening and care for comorbidities, including for cancer, uh, is resulting in presentation with advanced disease, diabetes, cardiovascular, kidney disease, cancer, uh, and missed or delayed routine vaccinations uh, raises the potential for increased vaccine-preventable diseases, and this is a very high concern. Very quickly in the COVID pandemic, we saw stark race and ethnicity-based disparities. As you see here, this is no surprise to any of us, and we have dealt with disparities since the beginning of the HIV epidemic. Uh, no different here. And uh, this is from a paper in The Lancet that was about HIV and COVID in U.S. Black communities. And, and they said that these racial disparities that rapidly emerged with COVID remind us that until inequities are addressed, disparities in HIV and COVID outcomes will persist and ending the HIV epidemic will remain elusive. So what will it take? COVID disruptions uh, in HIV testing and prevention highlight the need for innovation and investment before we have the next public health emergency. John O'Merman said that in uh, an article accompanying the MMWR that I uh, presented earlier. I wanna recommend this paper to everyone. Uh, it is an HIVMA IDSA policy, recommend, uh, policy recommendation paper for ending the HIV epidemic. And you can see that it is very broad. It touches many, many aspects of uh, care, uh, as well as prevention, um, and includes stigma, discrimination, HIV, criminalization laws, and policies. Now, I want to point out that 
appropriations have not matched the kind of funding levels that we need to meet the goals of ending the HIV epidemic. And you can see that on this graph, but you also see that we don't yet know what the funding levels will be for 2023. And this provides us with a very important opportunity. We have an opportunity right now in December uh, to advocate for our patients on, on a number of fronts. First of all, we have to be sure that every program that we initiate, every program we fund is grounded in an equity-centered and anti-racist approach. We can't end the HIV epidemic without ending the inequities. Uh, this, uh, I also want to mention that on a state level, expanding Medicaid in the remaining 11 states is absolutely essential. Patients need a safety net to receive care, including care for non-HIV conditions. I also wanna point out the Biopreparedness Workforce Pilot, and this is part of the Prevent Pandemics Act that is sitting before Congress now. It provides loan forgiveness for HIV and infectious disease providers in underserved areas. And that doesn't necessarily mean rural areas. It could be Ryan White clinics in urban areas as well. And this would be a major incentive for people to go into HIV medicine. So a very important uh, bill for which we can advocate. We also need to advocate for full funding for HRSA's workforce programs. They're asking for $2.1 billion for fiscal year 2023. We have seen how our HIV workforce has been decimated, and this would be an important way to start rebuilding. And also, there is a large menu of um, funding that affects our folks with HIV and who are at risk for HIV. That includes funding for the in the HIV epidemic, many CDC programs, uh, not just HIV and STIs and viral hepatitis, but also their opioid programs. It includes HRSA's Ryan White program, which really almost always gets sort of flat funding, not as much funding as we need to actually address the increasing number of people with HIV that we are seeing. Uh, and then finally, uh, Minority AIDS Initiative and HAPWA. These are really important programs that are generally underfunded. And I want to mention the president's U.S. PrEP program because the president has um, supported and submitted the idea of creating a U.S. PrEP program. One of our problems with PrEP is that we have never had a funding stream to support it. So this is something that uh, is very important and should be done with an equity basis. Um, we need to advocate for these innovative solutions that we pretty much have had to do to survive during COVID, including telehealth, um, extended prescription refills, um, home testing, mobile screening, uh, and care services as well, and differentiated service delivery included things like street medicine. And, and finally, eliminating laws and policies that stigmatize bisexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, HIV status, including the HIV criminalization laws. 
so excited to see that the Respect for Marriage Act has passed the House of Representatives today, having previously passed the Senate and will be signed into law. Because as we know, stigma kills. This is no different than it was in the very early days of HIV. It is still present and still killing people. And in conjunction with all of our pandemic uh, difficulties, we also have seen a rise in ideology that is anti-LGBTQ. And these culture wars are harming our patients. And it's so important for us to stand up and fight back against anything that stigmatizes or punishes uh, LGBTQ people who are already disproportionately stigmatized. So I will end here uh, by reminding us that uh, in, for this year's World AIDS Day, the um, slogan is achieving equity to end HIV. And for the UN AIDS report for World AIDS Day, uh, the title is Dangerous Inequalities and their slogan is Equalize. And, and why is this that we have to focus on equity? We have to fo focus on equity because our epidemic is inequitable and driven by structural factors such as racism and driven by poverty, driven by disproportionate effects on different populations. And we are really never going to end HIV unless we address equity at the center of everything we do. And so I will stop there and um, hopefully we can have some chat about some of these issues. And I'm really interested to hear what you all are doing in your clinics and what you have seen. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much. And I don't know if you can see me clapping here, but uh, but uh, I, I love your passion. It's really, I think you are one of the most articulate and passionate policy wonks uh, that we have uh, the fortune of, of working with. And I really appreciate it. I think you touched on so many important things. Uh, for those that notice my cat, uh, he was with me earlier, but he's wandering now he might he might <laughs> he might come back often his tail waves and eyes um, now paul that is very unfair to make me compete against your cat <laughs> he was competing against me um so i i uh, the first of all the the q a is open um we're we're not getting a ton of questions yet but uh but no worries because i've got a lot of my own i i, I wonder if we have any data melanie on uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking that our HIV patients are kind of smarter than the usual person in this country. And uh, is there any uh, sense of COVID uh, vaccination hesitancy among HIV? Are HIV people uh, better than uh, than the population as a whole in terms of uh, getting their COVID uh, vaccines and boosters? Do you know? Is there any data on that? You know, I, I don't I don't know if there are data on that. I have not seen those data. Um, my own experience has been that people, particularly older people who have lived through the HIV pandemic have no interest in being involved in another pandemic. And, you know, I, I think um, many of them were really the first to line up to try to get vaccinated. Um, and, you know, I, I think we, um, 
one of the things I've spent a lot of time talking with people about is, you know, why is this that we don't have a vaccine for HIV and we got a vaccine for COVID so quickly? So I, I think there is always some vaccine uh, skepticism among some groups, um, you know, particularly uh, groups where there is medical mistrust and longstanding um, issues with, uh, uh, you know, discrimination in the medical setting. Um, so it, it has taken a lot of time with some patients to talk about these issues. Uh, you know, these vaccines didn't just um, emerge full-blown from the head of Zeus. They had been, the platforms had been worked on a long time. There is safety data. Um, there is not excess mortality from vaccines. And, you know, people who have lived through the legacy of Tuskegee uh, have, have concerns about the medical um, environment. And even if they're too young to know what Tuskegee is, it absolutely affects how people approach interventions. So yes, I, I tend to think our HIV patients are pretty smart um, that uh, you know they, they want to live, they want to live well, uh, things get in the way sometimes in terms of social determinants. But, um, but I think those are interest, those would be very interesting data I, I, to I'd have. Love, I'd love to see it. Um, yeah. uh, you know, obviously, Ryan White, as you as you pointed out, is a very important program for delivering uh, HIV care, especially for the populations in the in the greatest need. Uh, any uh, sense that the Ryan White providers have shifted their attention on HIV? Uh, was attendance at the Ryan White update uh, changed? Uh, what, what's your what's your guess about that? Well, you know, I I think that. Um, Many people in Ryan White care are infectious disease uh, care providers and infectious disease care providers took the brunt of caring for people in hospitals with COVID uh, uh, in terms of consultation services. Um, and many people were pulled from their posts in their clinics to take care of people with COVID. So I think that has been a necessity that has gone along with the pandemic. Um, you know, we're stretched then to begin with here. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important is that we be sure that we train primary care providers to help take care of people with HIV. There are many things that primary care providers can do. Um, and, you know, I, I do think there are untapped resources for caring for people with HIV. But, you know, I. It, I don't think so much that people have chosen to move to COVID, but it's been a necessity. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, and then right on the heels of that, we've had monkeypox. And, right. you know, because of the overlap in the populations between monkeypox and HIV, and in some settings, I know in Fulton County, about 58% of people with monkeypox also have yeah. HIV. Yeah, yeah that this has put a tremendous strain on our clinics and our Ryan White clinics in particular. And I will say that HIV providers are the ones who have really stepped up to take care of people with monkeypox. Um, but there has definitely been an increased strain on Ryan White clinics uh, from monkeypox, but also COVID, COVID vaccinations, COVID testing, uh, caring for people with COVID and HIV. Melanie, one, one of the questioners uh, uh, actually raises that question, uh, uh, asking whether uh, Ryan White providers and Ryan White uh, clinics 
uh, are so focused on HIV that they're not delivering a, a broad primary care. Can you really quickly just comment on, on that? Well, actually, I think Ryan White Clinics um, provide HIV primary care to the best of their ability. And, uh, you know, HIV is more than managing antiretrovirals. And as you saw in Roger's talk earlier and the many talks that we have, have heard about comorbidities, um, people who are able to get a suppressed virus really are spending more of their uh, illness time with comorbidities like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and so on. So I believe that Ryan White care providers are very much focused on the overall health of the patients and on screening for and intervening uh, in comorbidities that are causing our patients problems. So I, I think it's actually the opposite. I think these okay. clinics are doing a terrific job. A uh, question about uh, sexual practices and whether uh, there was any uh, change in uh, higher risk sexual practices uh, changing during the first year of the pandemic. Uh, do you have any sense of that? Uh, yeah, I, I think there have been some data actually. It's a very interesting modeling study um, for STIs led by Sam Genis that um, sort of postulated different levels of behavioral change and what that would mean for STI incidents over time. And, you know, it mirrors to some extent the kinds of experience that I personally had and have heard others um, discuss and that are now beginning to come out in the data that there was a decrease in STIs that um, not only changing sexual practices, but, but basically changing our lives uh, and not being associated with so many people, but certainly not having as many sexual partners um, really did make a difference. And it, uh, you can see that in a decrease in STIs. Um, but one of the real concerning things is that um, behavior change really only lasts so long. And that now we are definitely seeing a rebound, we're seeing high levels of SDIs, and yet our services are not necessarily back to 100%. So I think this is a very dangerous point in which people are going back to some of their usual um, practices, uh, social and sexual practices, and yet um, we're, we're still not fully up to speed and we don't always have the capacity in our clinics and public health systems to, to serve these people. So I, I think we're going to see a lot more STIs. Yep, yep. Uh, so um, th this is a question I think I won't even ask you because I think it, I know it could take an hour or more to respond, but uh, one, of the, one of the questions- <laughs> Try to keep it short. One of the questions is whether uh, how 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 the heck do you have time to think about uh, equity and equal inequality when you're spending so much time on your individual patient care? Uh, but maybe just touch on that, Melanie, if you would. You know, um, taking care of people is is not only exhilarating, but it's also exhausting. And I think we try so hard to fill the gaps. We're overworked, we're underpaid. Um, and honestly, being involved in HIV advocacy 
is a little bit of a balm for the soul right. for me that, you know, I, I feel like my job isn't done when I walk out of the exam room and there are things I just can't fix. And I have really appreciated my involvement, particularly with the HIV Medicine Association, to learn more about how to actually put through policies and affect big picture items that can, can shift our playing field. And so, you know, these are the kind of things that, uh, yeah, they take more time, but they also give you something. I, I think they give you energy. They refill your spirit. So for me, that's been part of it. Well, at our next meeting, uh, we'll have a special talk on cloning Melanie Thompson, uh, so we can <laughs> have more of that. Uh, of that. It's been great, uh, Melanie, and I won't uh, dwell on the Georgia election, but congratulations on the Georgia election. <laughs> oh, um, let's dwell. That's all right. <laughs> I mean, all the help I, we can get. Thank uh, you so much, Paul. Uh, you've, been, you've been great, uh, and the audience has been uh, great, and lots of questions uh, some of which we got a chance to address. So I'm gonna turn the baton uh, back over uh, to uh, Constance Benson, who will take it from here.